I've never been approached to be a professional sportsman. Oh, I'm surprised, Mark. Wow, that is a shock. <laughs> Thank God the video is not. You'd get a very clear understanding of perhaps why. No. <laughs> Mark, hi, good morning. I'm recording this from Mauritius. What the hell are you doing in Mauritius, for goodness sake? <laughs> While the rest of us are toiling here back in the Oris of hey. And I presume you were immediately allowed to get off your plane once you landed there. Yeah, no, that was very easy, the whole disembarking process. I'm here in order to become an expert in Mauritius, and I've been here for two days. So I'm not an expert yet, but obviously by tomorrow I'll be a full-on expert. Okay, so just to get you right here, you're there to become an expert on Mauritius because you already are an expert in Mauritius. (laughs) I got that. Okay. Do you know, for example, that uh, Mauritius is the first African country to become a high-income country. I didn't know that. And in fact, I didn't even know that it was an African country. I thought it had its own little world. Well, yeah. it sort of does. It's kind of in the middle of the Indian Ocean, yeah. <laughs> it's an island with rather clearly defined borders. <laughs> like, yeah, why don't you try and walk across the border to Mauritius? <laughs> I don't need any fences there, but yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, it is an extraordinary story, though, because, you know, Mauritius is a very isolated island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. When it became independent in around 1964, I think, it was really one of the poorest nations on the planet Earth. And now it's a high-income country. Well, it's not quite. Actually, it went back one step during COVID. But to be a high-income country, you need a gross national income on a PPP basis of around about $13,000 on average a year, and Mauritius is around about 10,000. So they're a little bit off high income, but they were there for a little bit. I mean, it is an absolutely extraordinary story. Where is South Africa on that measurement? We're about 7,000 gross national income. So Mauritius is richer than us, eh, per capita? On average, well, the people of Mauritius are on per capita, yeah. Yeah. By quite a long way. It's extraordinary. And as you say, you just get off the plane, which is very unusual for South Africans. Better than Poland, eh? (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. What do you make of this all? Is your suspicion that South Africa messed up or is your suspicion that the Polish tried to kind of like spike the visit? Yeah, I think you've covered the bases there. Okay, (laughs) I think probably a little bit of both. I mean, you know, I think it was one of those things where, you know, they go like, hey, your mother-in-law's at the gate and you go, yeah. So, you know, um, I don't think we were the most welcome visitors, particularly, once again, it's not yet disclosed what sort of armory and ammunition presidential guard had. Right. Okay. And it occurs to me that they might have had a little bit more than is absolutely necessary to protect the president wandering around in the presidential palace. And so I suspect when they opened the boot of the aeroplane, and they found tons and tons of guided missiles and tank, anti-missile weaponry and so on. They said, maybe Oaks just hang on here a second while we check the stuff. That second turned into three days. So I think it was a bit of both. And judging by the expression on the Ukrainian president's face when he was, you know, engaging with the media next to our president, he didn't look as though it was a happy day in his life. (laughs) Um, So I... I think it was a shambles. I think the whole thing was a was an unfortunate diplomatic shambles. And then we headed off to the enemy. You know, so it was a little bit strange. You know, you pop into one country and say, all right, I'm not going to go and talk to the guys that we've just come out of the bunker from. 
Okay, and we're going to talk to them as well. And so I think it was flawed from its design because we've kind of made it clear we're not in the middle. So I think it wasn't great. You have to admire Russian President Vladimir Putin. I mean, what a kind of genius diplomatic move to rain missiles down on Kiev while peace talks are going on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Maybe he can't wait to come to the party. Okay, yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. This is the question that I have beyond all of the craziness about this. The question is, are the sides at the point where they are amenable to discussing peace? You know, frankly, you don't really reach that point until you've reached a decisive point on the battlefield. And they haven't reached a decisive point on the battlefield. Yeah. So, you know, there's no, there's no harm, obviously, in sort of talking in general terms. But the idea that, you know, suddenly either side is going to just announce, oh, my God, I didn't think of that. Let's have peace talks would be very surprising to me. The phone call will, will sort of go like this. Hi, man. Um, I was thinking of, of having a peace talk, but it'd be really cool if you stopped bombing us while I'm trying to get through to you, please. You know, and so I can see why not being shot at is a sort of precondition for sitting around the table. Okay. Um, so yeah, until, the, until there's, a, there's a, a ceasefire call and an appropriate neutral venue agreed upon and some you know, basic constructs, there's no foundation for a meeting of minds. So I hope they get to that place. Yeah, I mean, to me, this is one of those situations where it's more about us than it's about them. You know, that's the sense that I get about all of this, this sort of peace talks process for South Africa to try and square their relationships with all countries by demonstrably arguing for peace. And, you know, that's not a terrible thing. Yeah. You know, we, 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 can do, we can all get behind that idea. No, I don't think it is a terrible thing, but maybe not on Youth Day locally. And as yes. my mother used to say to me, you will not go out and play until you've made your bed and tidied up your roof. Okay, boy. <laughs> yes, and so, um, you know, we could take some of that advice. Yeah, I think it would be very cool if we kind of had our house in pretty much good order before we went and advised others as a sort of peacemaker. But uh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, peace mission unbecoming is how I might summarize the thing. But we seem to be developing other good relationships. I read here somewhere that the Republic of China. Yeah, no, no, no. I was just going to mention China too, because, you know, in the background here, the first high-level discussions between the American and Chinese head of state, uh, Xi Jinping, who met... Blinken and Xi. Yeah. That's very good to see, I think. Even if they can just agree not to make things worse, (laughs) I would give that a, a thumbs up. Well, that's just another set of peace talks about another kind of war. Yes. The weapons are different. The weapons are currencies. The weapons are trade agreements. The weapons are the absence of trade agreements and so on. It's just another peace process that one's trying to get an answer to. Meanwhile, for South Africa and China, I read that we have reached over $24 billion, which is about 365 billion rands worth of trade agreements already in the first five months of this year. Now, is that an onslaught or an invitation <laughs> is the question that you have to put to the table. You know, Are we gauging on equal terms? It's something I found in my limited exposure in the government. There's, whenever we argued with the private sector or sat down to negotiate with the private sector, it was presumed that we couldn't do so on equal terms. We changed some of that where I was, but 
are we a price taker in South Africa? Are we, you know, when it comes to raising foreign capital and entering into foreign trade agreements, are we able to stand our economic ground? I hope so, because we've got a lot to offer and we've got some of the stuff. But it seems like, you know, trade does go on. Trade has common purpose. No, no, no. It's, it's extraordinary. The, you know, the, through all of this whole period, which has now lasted, you know, over a year of geopolitical instability notionally, trade between you know, everybody <laughs> has uh, been going on, you know, like gangbusters. We're trading up a storm. Huh? I mean, you know, I, I had a look at one point at the trade relationship between South Africa and China, and it was very interesting. First of all, the most important thing is that it has exploded, right? China is now second, possibly the third most important partner of South Africa's behind the EU. It's more than America now. It must be more than And growing. And growing, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing was that it was evenly balanced. So South Africa was effectively supplying China with raw materials and China was supplying South Africa with manufactured goods. That was the essential part of the deal, right? Yeah. But more recently, as always happens, the balance has skewed massively in favor of the Chinese. Yeah. So now we are still supplying China with raw materials, but they are supplying us with much, much more um, man- manufactured goods. And our manufacturing sector has stumbled like everywhere else in the world. It's not a static relationship. Actually, you want South Africa to, to be much more attentive about these movements and to think about them a lot harder than we seem to up till this point. I sincerely hope that you moved on from the days where we used to supply wood to the world and buy back chairs. Yes. Because that's not such a cool deal. The, the, the beneficiation margin, as it was in minerals and other raw materials, which we have in abundance here, it was really just a transfer of wealth from South Africa to our trading partners. And let's hope we've come through that, what might I describe it as, a learning curve. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, a very long and painful learning curve. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a long learning curve, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's move on. What else has caught your fancy this week? Well, you can't help but avoid the national health insurance debate, right? Yes. I've heard various versions of it and various discussions of it, and a Structurally, I think it would be a great thing, like in education and every other facet of our common life here in South Africa, if everyone could get a fair stab at it, if everyone could get and hope for you know, a reasonably comparable service. Okay. The question is, how do you get from where we are to where we're going to? I don't believe in the hypothesis that you keep cutting the cake into smaller and smaller pieces. I believe we should rather be growing the cake. In other words... You know, if we are moving towards a lowest common denominator society, where we go down to whatever level satisfies broad-based consumption, regardless of the quality of the product or the cost to the fiscus, we have a dwindling tax base, and so the overall quality of the product will decline. Alternatively, if we could embrace the stakeholders in health and seek a solution which grew the industry in some non-biased way, we might end up with the same solution at a much higher level. So that would be my sort of naive criticism of what's on the table. And we've seen it happen, you know, where we have transfers of wealth instead of creation of wealth. I don't know what your thoughts are, Tim. You know, there's nothing more complicated than our healthcare system. It is an enormous puzzle. And to be honest, almost no country has got this completely right. And I think the problem is basically that everything about, you know, the medical sector shouts at you that there should be more private sector participation. 
That's because for all of the reasons that private sector participation works better than state systems. The only issue is, in your relationship with the medical industry as a customer, you are at an enormous disadvantage, which is why I think that medical system may be an exception to the rule that everything works better in the private sector, right? America, for example, spends, I think it was around about 20% of its GDP on um, the medical sector, and the UK spends about 5% of GDP in the medical sector and has a state-run system, and their medical outcomes are the same. That's the nub of it. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's why it's so difficult. I actually think that a split system is still a good one, especially for a developing country, because there's no way that we could afford a national health service system in South Africa on the available taxation in the taxation part. Even progressively, I think it's a dangerous direction. There is a big utility to having a split system, to having a split private and public system, so that you don't have to have medical insurance because you do have the public system at your disposal it's just not as good as the private system, right? Yeah, I think that's all okay in a world where the differences aren't that stark as they are here. And I think the, the issue is how well do the taxes get spent in the US and the UK? In other words, you know, is there an efficient central body that can collect taxes from the people and, and a declining, declining, declining number of contributors to the fiscus? that will wisely spend that money in the best interests of education and healthcare and so on. And our experience of late doesn't support that notion. (laughs) And that's the real issue. The real issue is if we want to solve this thing, we need to centralize not only cash but expertise, okay? We need a competent center. We need a center that will hold. We need a center that is not only, you know, virtuous but considered and competent and all of those good things. And I think that's where some of the debate falls apart when we compare ourselves, you know, to other organizations and, 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 and ecosystems. And so, you know, I don't think we're ready for it. I think if there was some sort of migration, if there was some sort of board put together between the private and public contributors to the health equation, if that board presided over an appropriate migration with a deep understanding and oversight of how the tax rands get spent on getting there, then we might get to the right place. If we make it a rule, I don't think we will. If we just impose a rule that cuts through any economic sense or allocation debate. Yeah. I have some friends who are, you know, supporters in principle of the idea of the NHI. I mean, they're great thermometers, I think, because they are sort of generally speaking supporters. But even they say two things. The one thing is, the problem with government is that it really doesn't think that it can learn anything from the private sector. And that is just wrong. Yeah. And the second thing is that this whole NHI process, which, by the way, will only start in five years' time, right? That's when you and I are going to need it most. Yes, 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 yes. But the financial technicalities of it haven't, haven't been worked through exactly. Yeah. Five years' time is our sweet spot. <laughs> this is true. I have one piece of very important news to pass on. Can't wait. And that is that Spotify has fired Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And I think that's important enough to reflect on just for a second, because if Spotify dumps them, then I think the British public is not far behind. As long as dumping them is news, they'll be happy. (laughs) I mean, they don't really care. As long as they get public attention against which they can protest with deep feelings, then they're happy. 
Yes. But I don't know what, I don't, yeah, I, I knew that. You don't want to spend two minutes on his money and sport. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was watching the US Open, the golf tournament. And one thing still for sure is that the people who want to win that PGA driven tournament want to win it because they want to be the best golfers in the world. That's their primary objective. But I see now that despite, you know, the LIVs throwing money at this, what they described as golf, but just more colorful or noisy, I think they said it was, right. that the PGA and the LIV have now sort of decided to make up and come together. Okay. Well, that's a bit like the return of the prodigal son. So the, the guys who sold their souls to the LIV are now saying, oh, it's okay. So you can go out and sleep around, so to speak, play around, but you can still come home afterwards. It's going to be fine. Okay, so money and the impact that that thing has on sport is significant. And the last comment is I, I happen to be kind of looking at how many South Africans are playing in the Rugby World Cup, which starts in September. There are 16 teams and there are about 20% of the total players are South African. Okay. <laughs> so we have, you know, Van Deventer playing for Scotland and, and Labuschagne or Labouche playing for France and, you know, making the names up. So money has really, I got from a, an informed source when I asked about this, the fact that hundreds of South African promising rugby players are plying their trade in Europe. So money does count. Yes, as always. Anyway. I've never been approached to be a professional sportsman. Oh, I'm surprised, Mark. Wow, that is a shock. <laughs> well, you, thank God the video isn't on. You'd, you'd get a very clear understanding of perhaps why. No. <laughs> I'm an old man, man. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, something we have in common. Yeah. All right, Marcus. Enjoy your stay in the island. I love the excuse that you have to become an expert. You had to go there. Yeah. Right, right, right. Exactly. Cheers, mate. See you next time. This show is part of the Africa Podcast Network. The biggest pod network on the continent. For sales inquiries, please contact us at info at africapodcastnetwork.com.